So I'm going to start off by asking DJ a question. I'll start the questions off um, by asking DJ to give us his background in entrepreneurship and startups and talk about the origins of the startup he co-founded, Skyslope. Thank you. So welcome DJ. Can we move it all in over here? Can we get everyone to sit down a little bit? Everyone's standing oh, yeah. makes me a little uneasy. Let's, let's, let's sit, sit kind of right around here. Yeah, like right here. Let's all gather around. Well, thanks, guys. I'm glad everyone can make it. I'll, I'll give a little background before we jump into it. Um, I think it's relevant to kind of go rewind the clock a little bit further. Uh, my previous, I, I've had two tech startups, one with a successful exit and then uh, Skyslope. So, um, rewinding the clock, I'm born and raised in Sacramento, actually in Folsom, Folsom High, class of 03. Um, I love this city. Um, I'm here to support it. That's why I moved back from San Francisco to start this startup. Um, so, rewinding the clock here, uh, my father's an entrepreneur, kind of raised me in that. I always read books on successful entrepreneurs for as far back as I can possibly remember. I just always knew I'd be an entrepreneur in some form, shape, uh, for as long as I remember. So, because of that, I got my real estate license right out of high school. Thought I could sell, you know, the biggest asset of someone's lives at the baby face age of 18, and I thought I knew everything, and I was, you know, I was um, cocky and confident, and all that stuff, and I failed pretty miserably. So that's how my career got started. Um, and I'll circle back around to why that's relevant here in a second. But then I decided to go to the number one entrepreneurship school I could afford, which happened to be the University of Arizona in Tucson. They were at the time the third ranked entrepreneurship school in the country. Uh, so again, every one of my decisions was really black or white. Did it get me? closer to being a successful entrepreneur or did it not? Um, and through that, every decision was a lot easier. So people ask me, like, how was it easy to pick up and leave all your friends and family and move to Arizona where you knew no one? It was 100% easy because that was exactly aligned with my vision of what I wanted to create my future of. Um, so moved to Tucson, Arizona, and through friends of friends, very serendipitous, I met my business partner at the time, uh, Sean Conway. So he had this idea um, of basically taking what was already taking place on campus physically, the note-sharing marketplace of people buying and selling notes for their, for their college classes and just putting it online. There was nothing out there at the time. It was really a no-brainer. I was already one of the sellers of notes. Sean was one of the buyers of notes. We are kind of our domain experts in this. Uh, and so we said, let's try this. And so we, we made a lot of mistakes, invested a lot of money in it, and kind of took our grassroots attempt at, at launching the University of Arizona. And we had kind of a home field advantage there, which worked out really well for us. And so we got a lot of friends, uh, got buy-in from the university, and really, we dominated the University of Arizona. We made about, I don't know, you know, 40 grand a semester there. We felt like that was infinite amount of money at the time, more money than we could ever do with. And we're like, this is going to be big at every university. we got to blow it up. Um, but we were humble enough to realize that we didn't know what we didn't know. We needed some mentorship. We needed some guidance. And so at that time, we started looking at accelerators, incubators. Who's everyone here familiar with accelerator, incubators, Y Combinator, Techstars, Dream It, all of those? And if you're not, basically what it is is they, they take cohorts of, of 8 to 15 companies, startups, and they'll put them in one room for an any duration of time, three months, six months, whatever period it is, and really just surround them with great mentors and advice and kind of feed off each other's synergies. Um, yes? Not to take you away from the synergy of what you're saying. Yeah, of course. But I am a little bit of a, of a novice to this. Um, I'm just kind of working my way up slowly. But Absolutely. Slowly. You said something about, uh, could you go back just like a few sentences? Yeah. So talking about accelerators or incubators, they're kind of, the, they're kind of yeah. the same thing. I know about the incubator stuff, and then what, you said something after that. 
so really what it is is they take cohorts of, t of companies. So they'll take eight to ten entrepreneur groups. They have kind okay, of... that part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got me with me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Perfect. Sorry. No, I'm it's all right. <laughs> um, so basically, they're kind of that concept stage. I'm assuming a lot of you guys here are in just concept stage. No revenues, not even necessarily a website, not an application. And they take you and, they, like I said, they put you in this environment that just really forces you to just accelerate everything. It's... It's a really dynamic environment. I'd highly recommend it to anyone that has the opportunity to do it, whether it's the most famous one, which is Y Combinator, or just a local one. Because I'll tell you right now, for us, it was like our master's degree in entrepreneurialism, tech entrepreneurialism, in three months. I mean, literally, it changed the way we thought about every problem we solved. You're flying. You're flying. But you also have a solid team, though, that's backing you up or we have, mentoring you, you? You have a lot of support. You have a lot of great mentorship. You have a lot of good advisors and a lot of good mentorship, but ultimately it's on you to, to, to deliver on the product, to deliver on the vision. A lot, a lot of companies don't. But I'll tell you right now, every single entrepreneur that goes through that comes out with a different mindset. They come out with a mindset of know how to solve problems differently and think about things differently in, in the right way. Um, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No Thank worries. You so much. No worries. Um, so we, we graduated from that, for lack of a better term, in, again, 2010, I think it was. Uh, and we went on the round to try to we went on the, the journey to try to raise funding our first seed round series A whatever you want to call it uh, and that was an interesting story and I can happy to dive into that a little bit later if you guys have questions on it but just know it was it was really hard really challenging full time job we ended up raising I think it was three quarters of a million dollars uh, back in 2010 with some investors that we liked it really worked out well for us and then we just poured it back into the company you know we were all taking really modest salaries i was living in philadelphia at the time because the incubator that we signed up for was called dream it which is based in philadelphia so again people ask me you picked up and left all the few friends you made in arizona and left them all again to go to philadelphia which has terrible weather and not necessarily the most friendly of people um and again it, it aligned with my vision for my life i wanted to be a successful entrepreneur didn't matter how i was going to get there i was going to take whatever sacrifice i made to get there and that's what i did um, so we started getting some traction after graduating from that, really, again, thinking about how to solve problems the right way. We made a lot of mistakes, but ultimately we identified them quickly because of the mentorship we got through that accelerator program. Um, we were at about 150 universities, probably 200,000 students nationwide, kind of, again, growing 100% year over year type stuff. When we decided to move back to San Francisco, or excuse me, back to Northern California, where all of the founders were from Northern California at the time. Uh, so we relocated to San Francisco. Um, with ambitions of continuing on the same trajectory and eventually raising our um, our series A, or excuse me our series B or even possibly exploring an acquisition. In between this, there's always a fun story that everyone likes to hear. We actually appeared on ABC's uh, TV show Shark Tank. Uh, we were season one, episode five. Um, it's a great episode. You can find it. I can't find it on YouTube anymore. It used to be on there a lot. Feel free to look for it though. Um, one of the uh, the bald headed guy. I forget what his name is. He actually Kevin. Kevin thank you. He actually ran behind stage after we didn't accept his deal to try to convince us to take his deal over Barbara's. Really cool story. Um, it didn't really do much for us. I'll tell this to a lot of people. It didn't really do much for us because, you know, the typical demographic is, you know, 30 to 50-year-olds and, like, we were going after college students. We maybe got, like, a handful of new users, really got nothing out of it, but a cool experience nonetheless. Um, so back to San Francisco. Again, we've just completed 2011. We hit all the milestones we had laid out for ourselves. Again, making all kinds of sacrifices, living on 40K a year in San Francisco, uh, wow. eating top ramen every night, working from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m., and then usually going back home and working more. And I'll tell you, it wasn't, I missed out on a lot of fun opportunities, but I loved what I did. My hobby, my passion, my job were all the same thing, and that's going to really allow you to enable you to love what you do. Uh, so again, a lot of sacrifices, but I loved it. I wouldn't trade it for anything else. It aligned with my bigger vision in life. Um, so we started looking for our Series B. We're looking to raise $1, $2 million. Um, 
at the time, in conjunction with that, we started getting some offer, offers from some prominent VCs in the Valley. Um, at the time, we had a very loose relationship with a textbook rental company you guys might be familiar with called Chegg. They actually recently went public about two years ago. Um, they rented textbooks to college students instead of having them buy it, so it was a lot more affordable. We had a casual relationship with them, figure out how we could partnership, and then when they caught wind that we we're actually looking to raise around a fund, they're like, well, what if we match that and just bought you guys? And we're like, hey, this is kind of interesting. Uh, so we went down that path, guys, and it was, it was kind of a no-brainer for a startup for our startup group. It wasn't life-changing money for the investors, but it was life-changing money for the founders. And again, we were all making 40k a year, living off top ramen, so anything was life-changing money. But really, it was a no-brainer for us. We decided to take that kind of sell ourselves a little short, but obviously take that money off the table, get the win under our belt, and in Silicon Valley, as you guys know, getting an acquisition is just kind of a big badge of honor that kind of sets you up really nicely for any future endeavors you're doing. So. That was, again, 2011. So, I, again, as, as you, when you get acquired, you typically have to work for the company that acquires you for a few years as you do the transition. We had a two-year vesting period. Um, during that period, I was bored as hell because I realized very quickly, even though there were only 500 people, I just couldn't work in that type of environment. The type of environment where I had to report to someone, just, I just didn't do my best work in that. So I instantly started looking for kind of what my next opportunity was. I always liked being in real estate. That's like my real estate license. So I reached back out to my good friend who got his real estate license at the same time I did named Tyler Smith. Um, again, I'm still working at Chegg at this time. I reached out to him. I said, I want to buy some investment properties in Sacramento. Um, I'm living in San Francisco at the time, but I couldn't have, the house out there are way too expensive, so I'm just going to buy in Sacramento. He's like, great, DJ, here's the deal. I'm going to help you buy as many investment properties as you want, and in return, I need help with this idea I got, this software idea. I was like, okay, here, tell me a little about that. You know, he wasn't a software guy. He was a real estate guy. And so... He's like, and I did my homework before meeting with him. I was like, shoot, this guy was, he wasn't doing anything when I first met him. He was the number one realtor in Sacramento at the time, 27 years old, selling 300 homes a year, which if anyone in real estate knows, that's massive volume. That's like the size of like a small, a medium-sized brokerage. Um, and so he was doing that number one realtor for three straight years, number five in K-Dub nationwide, top 30 under 30 realtor, all kinds of accolades. I was like, shoot, man, you killed it. Congrats. He looked at my resume, said the same with me, and we... We just caught up a little bit, and then he told me, he's like, so I've got this idea, this software idea that I, I know can transform my business, can help me to be more efficient, to be more compliant, to do more business, and I think it can help other brokerages, because I'm doing the volume of a small brokerage, I think it can help other brokerages do the same thing. I was like, I love it. I love entrepreneurs solving their own need, because they're the best visionaries, they understand the product, they understand the market, they know the lingo, they just, they, they live it, they, they know it. Um, so I was like, let's do this. I'll handle the operation side of things. So I'll handle the hiring, the sales, the HR, account management, all that stuff. You focus on the product and the vision, and we'll do this and see where it takes us. And so we both did it part-time for, God, about a year. This is probably 2011, 2012-ish. Again, he was still doing his real estate practice, doing big volume. I was still in San Francisco. And we started landing, and we were basically running the company of his third bedroom here in uh, River Park, actually. Uh, we started landing a couple big accounts. We made a couple big hires and stuff like that. Things started rolling and we got together again. We we're like, you know, this is actually a little bit bigger opportunity than we originally thought. We thought maybe it'd be a little hobby, maybe a little passive income, have some fun doing it kind of thing. Um, and that's when we said, you know, this is a much bigger opportunity. If we both commit to it full time, we can actually realize its true full potential. So that's what we decided to do. So he sold off his real estate practice. I relocated back from San Francisco to Sacramento. We moved into a brand new office, uh, not brand new office, old building, but a new office on 12th and G, 1210 G Street. Beautiful office, old bottling factory. It was 5,500 square feet. I still remember this. We only, uh, we only occupied half of it, 2,000, 2,200 square feet. And we said, we will never outgrow this. This is more space than we will ever need. And then, of course, as most startup stories go, eight months later, we were already occupying the entire thing. 
and 12 and 12 months after that we were busting at the seams we had to bring in a porta potty because we only had two bathrooms there everyone was double parked in there desks were on top of desks uh, it was a really cool energy experience kind of reminded me of my incubator days with kind of just a great synergy and energy in the building um, but again, we outgrew that, and that's um, that's when we started looking for more real estate. And a very, again, the very serendipitous moment happened again. Um, we looked at all the office space in Sacramento that fit our size and location, and nothing really met, met it. Um, we reached out to an old broker that showed us some property a long time ago. He said he had one off the market. We looked up, took a look at it, and we said this is perfect. It was the uh, for those of you guys that are familiar, it's the old Students First building. It's Kevin Johnson's mayor, uh, Mayor Kevin Johnson's wife's nonprofit. Uh, they invested a ton of money into the build-out. The building is absolutely beautiful. And they had just come on some tough times. So they were looking to sublease it, and it was 20,000 square feet, K and 9th Street, two blocks in the brand new arena, exact location, size, build-out, everything we wanted. We just moved into that October of last year. Uh, we just eclipsed 110 employees uh, this last 30 days. Um, we have 150,000 subscribers. We process roughly 15% of all the real estate transactions that happen in the entire US through our application. Uh, we're the number one transaction management solution in the country. We handle the number one Remax, number one Century 21, number one Coldwell Banker, number one BHHS, number one Century 21. All of them use our platform. Um, and we feel honestly like it's still day one. That's the story. What's the product? So the product is, um, it basically takes from escrow to close, if you're familiar with the real estate process, we take that entire transaction, we put it in the cloud. So that way all the agents, all, all of the clients, the home inspectors, the mortgage lender can access documents in one centralized location in real time. So they know where the file is, they can do all their digital signature online, they make sure that they're compliant, we have uh, logs to ensure that everything's tracked properly, checklist is all in there. Um, so it's a transaction management solution for the real estate industry. And who are your competitors? So we have a few competitors out there. Some of you guys might be familiar with DocuSign. Mm -hmm. uh, they do, they're really good digital signature and kind of very average to poor at transaction management. We're really good transaction management and very average to poor digital signature. So it just kind of matters what your flavor is when you're looking. So we go head to head with them a lot. Okay. Uh, no one has quite the presence we have in terms of the brand names, total agent count, that kind of stuff. Talk about your onboarding okay. process. Got one question back here first. What's up? The broker does. The broker does. The broker. So the, the value proposition is primarily for the broker. They're the ones that are staying compliant. They're making sure that all of their processes. What's up? Yeah. Uh, the so the the broker uh, of record. So the Century Century Twenty One. Let's say I own Century Twenty One Stefan Realty right down the street. I'm buying this for my for, for all of my agents to use. So the, they're obviously representing the seller and the buyer within the brokerage, uh, and it makes me compliant. Um, it makes my, me more efficient, more streamlined. And there is a value proposition to the agents. You know, they get to access their files on their mobile phone. They get a free digital signature. But really, agents hate change. So the broker we found very early on, they're the one that has to pay it and kind of force adoption, not force adoption, but encourage adoption through their agents. And that's the best method for us to distribute it. What's your pricing strategy? How did you come up with your pricing strategy? So our pricing strategy is What's, really- What was the question? The, price, the, uh, the question was, how do we come up with our pricing strategy? Um, and honestly, the market dictated our pricing strategy. You know, there was already some established players in the space and they had come up with a tier model per agent. So it didn't matter how much transaction went through the, pro the application. If you had 10 agents, you were paying for 10 agents. And so um, all of our competitors did it like basically buckets, zero to 10 agents, 10 to 25, 25 to 50, so on and so forth. The price per license went down as the bigger buckets you went, but obviously you're paying a little bit more. 
Um, and that market was already kind of established when we went into it, and so we couldn't really play with that. And we, so we led with that, and we always kind of anticipated us evolving the pricing strategy as we had a bigger presence. Um, but we haven't. It just kind of, it's stuck, and it's made sense for both sides of the parties as we continue to evolve. But we really had to go with what the market dictated. What's the average price? Average price is six twenty-five per user per month. Oh wow! Yeah. Per user per month. Per user per month. So if I'm an um, agent, so if, if, if I'm an agent with a brokerage, I'm a user. If I'm an admin for a brokerage, I'm a user. So the brokerage has to buy licenses for everyone that's on the application. They're paying monthly. We find that broker, the broker model is interesting where they find their, they pr prefer to pay a little bit more of a premium and pay monthly than pay kind of a discount and, and pay the lump sum up front. How did you come up with that pricing model? It's a great question. Again, it, it helped that Todd and I were both familiar with the real estate industry. So we had a general idea of A, how much brokers had to spend and B, what they'd be willing to spend for it. Um, but there was certainly some A-B testing in it. You know, we would, you know, early on, especially early on, we're trying, you know, different price points, checking the conversions on it. Um, I wouldn't say that we, we looked under it with like a fine tooth comb. We found something that just felt right. You know, ultimately we tried a little bit higher, we tried a little bit lower, we had a lot of sales here, didn't have many sales here. We kind of narrowed them in a little bit and ultimately found a price point that just felt good. I mean, I, I think a lot of people really harp on like, I gotta get the exact price. A lot of early on guys with entrepreneurism is instincts. You know, as you get larger, data plays a big part, but typically early on as entrepreneurs, everyone that's here, you guys are very smart, innovative individuals. You can empathize with your client, have a pretty good idea of what they're willing to pay and the value you're representing with them. It's very rare that you're gonna underprice or overprice it too terribly much. Go off your gut on that, and you can always adjust it down the line. Do you know what percent the clients actually use the software? Like, because I know you said it's, it was really designed for the brokers and yeah. the realtors, but but you said the clients use it too. So, do you do you have any so, data on the usage of the clients? Agents, we have a hundred percent adoption of all of our agents. That's our biggest differentiator. So, the only way an agent can get paid for their file is if their file is fully complete in our application. So we, when we onboard the broker, we teach them exactly like, this is how your agent's now going to get paid. They have to have, so we have green and red. So green means it's good, red means you still need to upload something. Mm -hmm. You don't pay the, your agent until everything on here is green. And your agent knows that, you know that, you're always on the same page. So it ensures the broker's compliant, and the agent never has like, oh, I didn't know I needed that. No, you've known since the moment you had an escrow that you needed to have all these documents. So it ensures that everyone's on the same page throughout the entire transaction. So the agent is encouraging the client, they need to sign then. So the agent, so the, so the agent can get paid. It's the agent's responsibility to ensure all the disclosures that they need to be compliant are signed by their clients. Okay. It's their responsibility. If they don't get that, then they can be, they can lose their license, they can be fined, all kinds of stuff. And the same effect happens to the broker. If the broker has an incomplete file, they can lose their license, they can get fined. So there's a heavy compliance factor uh, for the value for the, for the agents. What were some of your biggest objections early on? Oh, biggest objection early on. Um, timing's always, I think, has been the biggest and always has been the biggest. I'm just, I'm really busy right now. You know, trying to get all my agents on right now, it's, it's just not a good time. Um, you know, I'm trying to I'm trying to get a new website done. I'm trying to get my lead program in, in line. It's always timing, and that's, as salesmen, that's our, I'm a salesman at heart, I feel like, that's our responsibility to learn how to overcome those objections as best we can. We're not gonna get 100%, but we should get, you know, that 18 to 32% close ratio, um, and that shows our price points right, that shows we're able to overcome objections well, and it kind of differentiates our good between our bad and good salesmen. Yes. So um, backing away a little bit from product and looking at uh, how you were successful, startups always need some kind of funding, whether you're bootstrapped or you raise investment capital. Can you tell us a little bit about how uh, SkySlope funded your growth? Absolutely. Um, great question. So backtracking again, Note Hall, we, did, we lost money. We had a burn rate from day one till the day we sold. We never were profitable. 
from a profit and loss income statement perspective. Um, and that was the model we went with. It was just, we were trying to get to scale as quickly as possible. We wanted to, we wanted to consume the market as quickly but as possible. But who covered that during the interim? Uh, so we raised, fund, we raised a friends and family route and then we raised a series A. So that covered all of our losses. And then we also were making some revenue, we just weren't making a profit. Uh, with with Skyslope, a little different approach. I actually, I hated the way, the relationship I had with my investors. So I made the conscious effort with, with Skyslope and said, if we don't have to raise funding, I don't wanna raise funding. Um, and the beauty of Skyslope is it's, it's a SaaS product, software as a service, which typically means there's a reoccurring component of, 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 of sales. Um, so when we signed up a, a subscriber, they were paying $6.25 per user per month. So we started getting revenue and consistent revenue on a regular basis. And with that cash flow, we're able to reinvest that back in the business. Also helped that Tyler and I had financial success in our past so we could fund it whenever we fell a little short in any given month. But Skyslope has been self-funded from day one and it's been a conscious effort and it just worked out really well for us because of the cash flow from the business complemented with the business model. It just, it made sense for us to do that and we've always always been able to thrive on that. It's a beautiful thing. It really is. So Tyler and I want to- like a beautiful It's rare and I highly encourage anyone that can. Like, yeah. We're very proud of it. I, 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 can, I can truly and only um, appreciate that. Well, thank you. Thank you. Anyway. Right back. And how you remuneration? What was that? I'm sorry. How do you receive your remuneration? What's remuneration? Your, your, your pay. Oh, we're, I mean, from the broker? Yes. The broker's paying us monthly. We have their credit card on file. We have we use FreshBooks. They're billing them every single month. We know we know exactly how much it'd be. What? Fresh. FreshBooks. So it's a it's a accounting slash billing software, and so we every time we sign someone up, we, we get their credit card information, we plug into FreshBooks, and then the first every month they know that money's coming out, and if, if they if they get a new credit card or something like that, it'll be declined. We'll restrict their access. We'll go get the new credit card from them, and then move on. Right here. So you're highly vulnerable. Um, I'm imagining in terms of security. What do you guys do to protect yourself? That's a great question. Oh yeah. Um, so our, the question was, how do we how do we protect ourselves? What's our what's our, our our moat, if you will, to protect ourselves from competitors coming in? Uh, for us, the biggest way we can ensure that we don't we, we don't have any churn or, or cancellation is getting fully ingrained in the process of the brokerage. The more features and value we provide to the broker, the more of a headache it's going to be to untangle us from their process. So the moment they start telling their agents. They have to adopt the solution. You know, they have to use our digital signature. They have to use our task. They have to submit it. Now, if they want to switch solutions, the agent's going to throw a fit. They're like, you just, I, I, I had to learn this entire process. I had to change my entire business. And now you're asking me to switch it? I'm not doing that. And for, the, for those of you guys that are familiar with the brokerage model, really, the broker is there to serve the agent. So they can't make any switches if it's going to piss off the agent. And so it's an interesting dynamic there. And so as long as we get insurance that the agents are using all of our solution, the broker can't pull away from us anymore unless they want to piss off a lot of agents. And so. So that's a good answer. But actually, more I was asking that you've got bank information up there in the cloud that's vulnerable to hackers. How do Internet you security. Ah, great question. Cybersecurity um, cyber protection. Um, we have the greatest engineers on the planet. That, that's the answer to your question. Literally. Um, we've never hired junior entry level engineers for better or for worse. It's our strategy. Um, we've always hired kind of the top of the top here, people that are really experienced, especially in things like security. Because to data to us is everything. If we get hacked, yeah. if we lose a document, we're going out of business. Lawsuits, everything like that. We've never spared a single expense when it comes to that. And that's just kind of knowing 
like you said, our vulnerables, our weaknesses, and making sure that we're doing everything. Obviously, we could attack this thing forever and never have a perfect solution, but it's always at the forefront of our minds in every decision we make. Oh, so you're a salesperson, your partner's a real estate person. Talk about your development team, where you found them, how you found them, how you convinced them. How did you spec it out? Could we do the follow-up question oh. first? Yeah, that's a good question. Let's get going over a little bit there. Okay, so you guys PCI compliant and you're running the transactions on your end or using a third-party software to run the transactions? Uh, if you're running it on your end, you need to be PCI compliant. We right? don't, because we're actually not we're, not, we're not handling any social security information or credit cards. We're just handling contracts. The, the payment processor is FreshBooks. They're, they're handling that. We're not handling any payment processing on our application, though. What's FreshBooks? It's an online payment program. It's an online payment platform. They're phenomenal. It's like QuickBooks. Yeah. Really? FreshBooks. But are they that common place yeah. that I haven't heard of them? Okay. They're big. Yeah. No, they're, they're a big company. They have a great book. It's worth yeah. reading. Where uh, are they out of? Canada, I think, actually. Yeah, no! Yeah. No Canucks! <laughs> Sorry, I have a lot of Canadians. <laughs> Um, that was just a natural progression. We were using QuickBooks, and it just wasn't be able to. It didn't scale with us, so we just looked for alternatives. They're, they were a startup at the time. I mean, they'd been a little bit more established, so it was just literally googling like who can handle payment processing, who can handle who's who's, really? the, who's QuickBooks number one competitor, and like it was just first thing that showed up there was those. We did demos with three or four of them, talked to a few of their references, and just chose the best one. And we've been really happy with them ever since. It just sounds so simplified, you know, when you break it down like that. And I It really is, guys. I'm telling you. I Google everything. I'll Google, like, salesman compensation. I'll Google how to handle a difficult conversation with an employee. I will Google anything, guys. And I'll tell you, it's all out there. And it's, it's all, all out there. Disposal. Yeah, I learned it all. I mean, I, I, think, I think more than anything, this job, this my, my occupation, humbles me every single day. It teaches me that I... Every day, my, I tell this, me and, my, me and Tyler, my business partner, I talk about all the time. We are humbled every day by this job. Things that we think are certain truths end up being completely wrong every single day. And if you have that mindset, I'm telling you guys, you can do great things as long as you always have that humble mindset. I want to learn. I want to grow. There's got to be better ways. That's going to open up so many doors for you. But you have to start by knowing that all the things you know, yeah, there's probably some truth to them, but challenge how truthful they are, and you're going to uncover a lot of things with that. So the question was, how do we get talent and recruit talent? Development talent, uh, engineering talent, talent. Yeah. very difficult. It really is. Um, you know, Sacramento surprisingly um, has a tremendous amount of engineering talent. I think we get overlooked in that in that capacity. Uh, and so we we do surprisingly we do. Um, I, you know, like I said, in San Francisco, there, there's numbers wise, there's a lot more out there, but the competition was so much stiffer. If you have a cool, exciting project here in Sacramento. Engineers are going to want to work for you as long as you can pay them reasonably to what they're already making. They're willing to come to you because I'm telling you the, jo the wow. jobs engineers have here are very corporate, very staunchy. They want to get out of them, and that that's what we appeal to. Obviously, not everyone. Some people love the security of those big IBM companies. Sure. That's fine. That's for them. But a lot of people want the freedom and flexibility to like have an impact on like if I have if I want something changed, I can get a change in 24 hours. At IBM, it takes six months. And they love that, that iterative process, that agile process that's so unfamiliar to them. So you can get them, you have to be willing to pay market wage. So obviously if you're, if you're, if you're coming in, you're entirely bootstrapped, you don't have the money, then you gotta try to sell them the dream with some equity. If you have a little bit of money, you're gonna probably have to go a little more junior to mid-level. And then as you continue to grow up, you start bringing in that more senior engineering team. 
Um, yes. So, so what development tool is the platform built on? And, and talk about like how you actually acquired your first development yeah. team. So yeah. we're on .NET. Okay. Um, so we're Microsoft shop across yep. the board database, everything like that. First engineering team was actually overseas. So we started overseas for the first year. So we built the prototype as cheap as we possibly could. Uh, I think the company is actually based at Folsom called Agree. I think they're still around. Uh, phenomenal company to work with. Uh, they helped us lay some foundational stuff. And then we got to a certain point where we started dealing with big clients where they're just like, you know, we can't join a, a sign up with your application unless the engineering team is, is domestic. You know, we can't be talking to someone in India. We don't feel comfortable with that. No problem. Uh, and so we, uh, we enlisted a recruiter for the first one. Um, he found us kind of our senior guy that we we're going to build the team around. And then once we had the senior guy guys, honestly, he brought in the next three or four or five. And then we started at the next three or four or five. They brought the next three or four or five out of that. If you create a culture that's exciting and dynamic and you paint a vision that's exciting and dynamic, they're happy to go tell all their friends they just worked at IBM with, be like, hey, you should come check this out. And they just start coming in. Uh, word of mouth was really big. You have in house recruiters. Uh, Stella. Right Stella. 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 Yeah, you thank you. You have in house. Yeah, it needs a shot of her. No, that was good. Yes, I was kidding. Sorry. I know. I'm from Jersey. We, um, I was going to say something and I forgot. Do you have in-house recruiters? Currently? We do. We, so we, we, I think you do because we just two years ago I was living in San Francisco and my husband and I went through, let's just say, a little bit of a trying time with our company. And um, it went under very, very quickly. And uh, very quickly. I mean, boom, overnight, gone. It happens. Yeah. And we're still rebuilding now and whatever. Anyway, I do recall the name of your company because I was on Craig's and you guys were looking for a recruiter. Oh, yeah. And I went, and anyway. That's about two years ago. That's exactly when we brought on Darren, who I think is the best recruiter in Sacramento. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but before that, we were just gritty. Anyway, we were, we I'll got, be back. We got, we but got, I wanted to share that with you. We got our hands dirty, guys. We were posting jobs on Craigslist, on Monster, yeah. on Indeed. You know, I was doing the screening. I was looking at the resumes. I mean, you just got to do whatever you got to do to keep your company afloat and keep it moving forward. It's just, you know, it was just the process. So what's the, the, the structure of the company? Great question. Um, so Tyler and I are the two co-founders. We're the only executive levels. Um, we have four VPs underneath us, VP of engineering, uh, VP of sales, VP of customer su uh, success, and VP of operations. Um, our engineering department, in total, out of, a, out of our 110 employees-ish, um, they make up about, probably about 30. Um, that, that includes uh, our engineers, our QA, and our product team. So, so three kind of departments within that. All domestic. All domestic, all in-house. Uh, our sales team is probably, our sales and support team are, are the two second, probably tied for second. Sales is probably right around 16 people, and support is probably right around 20 people. So our biggest differentiator in the marketplace is that we know agents don't like adopting new technology, but our guarantee is that we provide 24-7 customer support. So if the agent needs anything from helping them get a signature to upload a document, we are here for them. If we don't answer our ring, our phone in, in two rings, if we don't answer an email within 10 minutes, if we don't answer a chat within 10 seconds, we send them a $10 gift card to Starbucks. That's our guarantee. We actually stole that from FreshBooks. It's something they do. Uh, but we stand behind it because it's our clientele. It's what they needed to feel comfortable adopting a new platform. 
So when a broker goes to their agent and says, we're gonna adopt this new application, they're like, no, no, we're not gonna do that. He's like, don't worry guys, you have your personal liaison here 24 seven, anytime you need anything. They're gonna ensure that you can adopt this fully and feel comfortable with it. And if you don't know how to do something, you just tell them to do it for you. That's what they're trained to do. Um, we actually were ranked the number one customer support team um, in the mid, uh, small to mid-sized companies in the country uh, this last year. It was a big nice. accolade for our, for our support team. Nice. Um, but yeah, so that, that's kind of a little history for us. Hundred percent, loosely about every night. It's a great question, phenomenal question. Um, the the real estate market's been on an eight-year bull run. For those of you guys that know economics, eight years is about the end of that bull run. As much as we all believe and would like to think that's going to continue like this forever, it's not. We're going to flatline. We're going to lose some business. That kind of stuff. Uh, so, with that said, our our number one mission right now as a company is to get make sure that agents fully adopt every portion of our application. So that way, when the market does turn, we're the last thing the broker can take away from their agents because the agents love us so much they can't take us away. So that's our responsibility. That's first and foremost. Second thing is we feel like the real estate tech space is just ripe with opportunity. Everywhere you look, there's an inferior software or an inferior service. What that means to us is opportunity. So we can take our platform of 150,000 agents to our application every single, at least once a month, and we can start selling them ancillary things and new services and offerings. And so we personally think we can continue at a 50 to 75% growth clip by offering these new verticals. It won't be transaction management. That will start to plateau a little bit, but we'll leverage the base of views that we have to start offering other services. And that's actually our fastest growing department right now is, is what we call SkyTC. And they provide a basically, if, if you don't want to even log into SkySlope, we'll do the entire thing for you. So that means you don't have to do literally anything. You don't have to talk to support. You don't do anything. We'll do it for $300 a file. And right now, that's, we've gone from one employee in that to 15, um, $0 in revenue to $60,000 a month in revenue inside of eight months. So you just become their transaction coordinator for yeah. $300? Yeah. So they don't even have to think about SkySlope. We'll do everything. It's a beautiful thing because now we also created these SkyTCs. Are basically our biggest power users on the application. So now they're telling our dev what features they need. And it's just kind of this cyclical nice. circle of making, nice. we're adding revenue yeah. and we're getting great feedback. And it's really, we couldn't have asked for anything better. Really. Wow, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah. So uh, your last startup, you uh, was acquired. Yes. So you had a cool liquidity event that allowed you to start this next one. Are you looking at, uh, are you planning for that in Skyslope's future? Or do you have to shoot me if you tell me that? <laughs> or, uh, is there an exit strategy? IPO? That's a great, great question. Um, we're always listening to whatever partnerships, offers around the table. That's just, as an entrepreneur, I think you should always be doing that. You never know what's going to unco uncover and rock. But with that said, we're cash flow positive. We absolutely love what we do. We feel like this is honestly day one. Um, we would love to create the next great Sacramento company. You know, we'd love to be that next Intel presence where we've got 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 employees here and they're all kind of living that culture that we've set up and set that foundation with. And we position ourselves perfectly to be able to explore any options but also move towards that. Um, and so right now it's heads down, capitalize on the market we have um, and become the next great Sacramento company. That would be good. Yeah. We need a big company headquartered here. We're trying. Day by day. You're doing good. Thank you. We're at, we're at 100 employees now. We'll probably be at 150 by the end of the year. I think we'll be at 300 within 12 to 18 months after that, and who knows after that. Uh, you guys have great internal culture, it seems like, uh, the way you guys recruit. What is the philosophy behind designing the culture, or what is the thought process? How did you come about the culture you have? 
It's a great question. So the question was, how do I go about designing the culture? Um, honestly, I developed a culture that I want to work in. It wasn't, it wasn't, I don't want to say it wasn't intentional, uh, but it wasn't necessarily strategic. We're not like, this is the culture we want to become. How do we get there? It was like, I want to like where I work. I want to like the people I work with. And these are my values. These are Tyler's values. Let's marry these and just make sure that we don't compromise on that. We don't hire people that don't match that. We don't, when, when, when certain instances uh, arise that don't match that, we make sure to squash it really quick. Um, you know, so as we've gotten larger, it's been a little bit more difficult. Early on, when you're 20, 30 employees, the culture is you. I mean, everyone is buying into you and your co-founders. They're working just as long as you are because they're so bought into it and they love it and that's just the reality of it. Uh, as you get larger, you have to be a little bit more intentional about it. And that's when we clearly outlined our values. We, uh, thank you, my good man, thank you. <laughs> uh, so as we got, right, right when we hit about the 75 person threshold, right when we had to bring on HR, that's when we also said we need to bring it, we need to clearly define our vision and our values. Um, and we're still working on vision, but values is clearly defined. Uh, and that's because, did you get a great tee shot? I don't think so. Oh, you have to have one. <laughs> it's so it's Jameson based, but it's delightful. Do I take the whole thing Sell down it. right now? No, just do okay, it. Yes, do it. All of it. <laughs> oh my goodness. You're welcome. You're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Now let's That's see what great. kind of answers <laughs> we can get. Yeah, seriously. Now I might talk about acquisitions and selling IPOs, all that stuff. No. Um, no, that's great. I appreciate it. Uh, so as you hit about 50 to 75 employees, you have to be intentional about the culture you create because you're no longer interacting with every single person in the company every single day. At 20 people, I knew everyone's frustrations, aspirations, goals. I knew everything about them. I hung with them outside of work, hung them inside of work. And that's easy to create a culture that's you and them. It's like, that's really easy to do. Once you hit 50, 75, I'm now meeting people like once a month, you know, meeting people, you know, I, I have to be intentional about actually catching up with someone. It's not just happening in the, in the nuance of the day to day. And so what Tyler and I's values weren't stretching as far. Um, and so we actually had to sit down. We spent about literally three to four months going back and forth with revisions on our values, defining them exactly what they are. We published those two years ago. And I'll tell you right now, that stood the test of time. I firmly believe those are the reason why we're successful. I, it's the first thing people learn when they get into our company. It's something that we embody at every single level. We make sure that our leadership meetings, we focus on it, and they're focusing on all their meetings. Because you have to be a lot more intentional as you hit a certain threshold. How many women are on your BP team? Uh, two of the four. Nice. Yay! <laughs> we are the best, guys. That's, that's all that matters. We are the best. I'll tell you right now, there's a lot of great women out there. Why the name Sky Slope? I wish I had a good answer for that. <laughs> I wish I did. So why the answer? Why the, the name Sky Slope? Um, honestly, um, make it up. Okay, if I had to make it up on the spot, no. It was we just need something that we like. So the, the name first started off as Smith Premier Portal. That's Tyler Smith, my my business partner's name, and that was what he branded it LLC, Smith Premier Portal for his own company. And so we just need something better than that, which wasn't hard to beat. So we basically just said, hey, we want something to do with clouds because we're cloud computing. Hence the sky, and he's like, and I like Tahoe a lot, so they pulled like names out of a hat, they found, they gave us like 10 that were available, and Sky Slope ended up being it, and sky slope. that's it. It flows though, it works. Sky it slope. does work surprisingly, it works. yeah. It totally works. <laughs> Did you work with a marketing company to name your comp? We didn't. 
We've, I was curious, uh, you said they gave us the Oh, that, um, we, we, um, our engineering team just looked at oh, domains okay. available. Yeah, we said, Here, here's 100 words, go yeah. find domains that are available for us. And they just came back a list of 10, and we're like, nah, Sky Slope sounds good. We'll change it if we need to, and now we love it. So um, you've been building Sky Slope in Sacramento since 2012, is that right? So 2010 is when me and Tyler first started talking. 2012 is when we first got actually a headquarters down here. Okay. So I have a question about the startup community in general. Um, which oh, I've been you don't in want this, to get me started on that. I've been in this community for a while, and there wasn't a lot going on back then. Uh, there's a lot more going on now. Absolutely. But I'm curious, uh, was there anything in Sacramento that helped you in the early days? And what have you seen change, hopefully improve, uh, but maybe not, over the last few years? And what do you think are um, some of the biggest gaps that people who um, work in this community should be focused on and... Uh, trying to to establish here. First off, round of applause for Laura because she is actually developing the startup community. Has been committed to it for a very Yay, long time, Laura. and I've seen it come a very long way under your tutelage. So and Jeff and Jeff and Jeff. I'm sorry, Jeff. I'm behind the camera over there. I'm always behind the scenes. Um, so I'll be honest. When I first moved back to Sacramento, guys, it was incredibly disappointing on how fragmented the marketplace was. I'm used to San Francisco, where if you want to get plugged in. It's literally, there's five straight happy hours in one night that you can just go to one next and you feel instantly plugged in. I came here and there was nothing. I Google searched it. I tried to go to a couple. And it was just really fragmented. So I got super discouraged early on uh, and just did my own thing. I didn't worry about anything else. I wanted to be plugged in, but it didn't happen. And then slowly over time with you guys and Rich, the community started to form. Um, it's still got a long ways to go but it's come so much further than it's ever been. There's events like this going on now. You can get plugged in um, if you're looking now. Before you didn't have that opportunity, it just shows you how far we've come. Um, my biggest concern and that the biggest thing I liked the frustration with Sacramento Startup Community, and you guys are trying to solve this head on, is the fragmentation still. You know, if you're looking for mentors, if you're looking for a, a technical co-founder, you're looking for money, you're looking for whatever it is, you gotta hunt for it. You gotta go out and get it. You guys did a phenomenal job at least creating a spot where people can start looking for and begin their search, but you gotta go get it. In San Francisco, I feel like you can almost passively stumble into it. Here, you can find all that stuff, but you have to go get it. You have to find the people, you have to stalk them on LinkedIn, you have to email them, you have to show up at their office and drop off a, a, a basket of goods or whatever it is. You have to make it happen. We're getting there, guys, but it's like entrepreneurs like that that are nitty and gritty that are willing to get in there and get their hands here to make things happen. Those are the people that are gonna finally bridge the gap between the money and the advising and the and the co-founders and the and the, the the innovators, all of that coming together. Um, I think we're stronger than we've ever been, and I think the the future's brand that's ever been. We still got a long ways to go, though. What I think I see some is uh, we are more of a family community. It, not saying Bay Area isn't, but those guys and gals are out there almost every night doing something social like this yeah. and in our community I think maybe once or twice a month somebody might get out there but just being in a, a group like this you've increased the density of the people that you can meet and somebody here maybe knows someone that you're looking for so you know NorCal Sacramento especially is, is unique is unique in the terms of I think we got a lot of really giving caring compassion individuals and that's our strength we don't need to be the Bay Area you know let's right. let's create a, a network that's a fraction of the size, but that cares and that, that comes together and supports one another and uplifts everyone. Yeah. And that's yeah. when greatness can happen. That's when we start developing our own technical ecosystem that can thrive. It's not going to be the Bay Area. It's not going to be yeah. Austin. It's not going to be Boulder. It's not going to be that stuff. It's going to be Sacramento. 
and if we rely on our compassion, our caring, our, our work ethic, that's Sacramento at its core, and that's what we need to build it around. So it's, you know, it's finding those types of people and keeping everyone together. Uh, DJ, uh, back to Note Hall. How did you figure out uh, how to launch in a new campus? Man, you gotta rewind the clock here for me on that one. That was 2010. So how did I figure out how to launch at new campuses with No Hall? Um, honestly, a lot of falling right on my face and trying to figure things out. Um, so we tried a lot of different things, and ultimately, it just we we started, we kept gravitating, kept iterating on it. So for starters, we said, okay, we need all of we we need to figure out how we can get we it's chicken and egg problem. We have we need notes or we need people to buy the notes, right? And so we said, first and foremost, like if people come to, to look for notes, there's no notes, they're not gonna buy anything. They're, they're gonna instantly not see value, so they're gonna walk away from the site. So first thing, get rid of that. Let's focus on how can we get actual content on the website? How can we get actual notes on there? And so we started off with brand ambassadors, you know, people on campus passing out flyers, put up notes for free for money basically. So we had to basically saturate and stimulate the marketplace by overpaying for these notes that we knew weren't worth that. We had to pay you know, $500 for notes that are probably only worth $100 in terms of how much revenue they're gonna bring in, but that stimulated the marketplace. And once, uh, you know, someone came to the website and saw like, oh, I'm better than those notes, and this person's making money for that, I'm gonna start I'm gonna start posting my notes and I'm making money off it. So we had to overpay initially, and we did that by whatever means possible. So it was overpaying for notes, get brand ambassadors out there, we did a lot of email campaigns, I think Facebook ads was just getting started back then, or just maybe it was in infancy stages. Uh, Google AdWords, we had did it, we sponsored events. Whatever we had to do to get that market saturated, we knew that we had we had streamlined the rest of the engine. That once we got a certain threshold of nodes, that the engine was running so good, our conversion rates, our funnels, everything like that, everything was going to flow from that point forward. So it was all about that initial chicken and egg problem. How can we get the notes in there? Um, and we just did it variation on each campus. You had to understand the dynamics of each campus. And once we understood those, we developed a plan that worked for that one specifically. Attacking universities is a very tricky market because every single campus has its own personality and you got to cater to them. If you try to blanket it and generalize it, you're going to fail. That's just the reality of it. And so first thing is we had to understand what the campus was like. Second thing, we had to optimize our engine to ensure that once we got notes, everything else was a funnel. Everything else was just conversions. And so it was just about simulating the marketplace, the conversions were optimized, and the output was just a successful campus. And not every campus was successful. You know, we probably launched at 500 and 250 worked out. So 50% conversion rate. If we wanted to keep going, we'd probably figure out ways to convert the rest of 50%, but obviously we sold before we had the opportunity to do that. And again, we just focused on the lowest hanging fruit. We'll focus on the campuses where the easiest for us to launch it. Don't try to figure out how to launch the campus that's small and small classrooms that didn't really work for our model. Focus on the ones that work well, and we'll figure out that one later. I'm not worried about that one until later. And we just never cross that bridge. Um, did you say at the beginning of your talk that you're not looking for VC funding, you want to stay private? Yes. Okay. Yeah, we're, we're self-funded. We've gotten plenty of money in the bank right now. We've got a lot of cash flow coming in. Okay. Um, we're good. We get a lot of a lot of inquiries, but we're good. Good. Yeah. It's a great question. So we actually don't even have a marketing department. Our entire sales team is all inside sales. So we have we have two teams. We have a BDR team, which is the prospecting lead generation team. We have the account executive team, which does the demos, the follow-ups, ultimately closes the accounts. Um, our sales cycle is typically 90 to 120 days. Um, so we have it broken down to the micro of the levels. Our BDRs, which is our prospecting team, they, they make excuse me, 80 to 100 calls a day. Of those 80 to 100 calls, they'll schedule three demos. Of those three demos, one and a half will show up. Of those one and a half demos that show up, we'll close 20% of them. It's really a numbers game. And so we just, we again, it goes back to that refining your, your 
we're scientists. Entrepreneurs are just scientists. We're constantly tinkering with that, toying with that, and just figuring out what works and what doesn't work. And that's all it was. We just, you know, we started off, we made 50 calls. We're like, oh, that's not really good. Let's make 100 calls. Okay, that talk track needs to change. What's our conversion rate on that? Ultimately, we settled in where we're at now, and this is after seven years of doing it. You know, we probably didn't figure out the formula for probably three to four years before we actually figured out how to, what, what the metrics were. So once the um, once the customer says signs on the dotted line pretty much, our, our activation team, again this is one of our differentiators, our activation team is personally trained by Tyler who knows real estate inside out, breathes it, sleeps it, eats it. And so when they talk to a broker, they instantly feel comfortable knowing that they're talking to someone that knows their language, not some technical person, not some customer service broker, a real estate expert that understands their process and knows how to tailor that specifically to, to SkySlope and onboards them as best as possible. Um, so typically, again, it's, it's very similar. Again, it depends on the size of the brokerage. I've, we've launched a you know, 3,000 agent brokerage in 30 days. We've also taken a year as we launched individual offices. It really depends on what's the broker's goals. Why are they, they have to understand their process? What are your goals? And let's work backwards from there and make you happy. Um, average on average, it probably takes about sixty days before when a broker signs the dotted line to where they're fully launched and fully implemented. Do you have a have we tried a premium model at all? Do we have people actually The problem is we have well we actually we have and we haven't. Uh, we did like a little hybrid freemium model for a while. The problem was unless we got everyone to fully commit, they didn't see the value. You know, because for us, it's one of those things, you, if you dunk the toe in, you're only gonna get 10% of the agents to actually do it, because unless they're forced to do it or make it mandatory, they're not gonna do it. And unless the brokerage has full adoption, they don't see the value. So once we, once we saw that, we're like, there's no point we can offer this. We'd rather not get the sale than get 10%, 90% not do it, broker not be happy, broker leave the application. We'd rather not get the sale and say, we are the experts, trust us. We know how to get your office paperless. You need to trust us as experts in this process. If you're not willing to, then there's plenty of other applications out there that are freemium models that you should go to because we're not your solution. There was always a story. There was a company called Zip Realty that actually, like, you know, they were acquired by Realogy. Zip Realty acquired by the Zap Store. Zip Realty. Yep. Right. Yeah. They use them. They had a similar model, but they actually went off and yeah, they, they had a they had more of a lead nurturing uh, application, and they sold that to Realogy uh, for 140 million dollars about two years ago. But they did go public, but then that didn't go very well. No, it didn't. But then Realogy bought them a few, uh, few months after that. Yeah, we followed them closely. Yeah. So what is your exit strategy? No exit strategy. Exit strategy is is build a business that's great, provide value to the ecosystem, guys. Like everyone's very focused as entrepreneurs. Like, what's my exit strategy? What's an IPO? What's my acquisition route? Like. You guys, there are businesses where you just cash flow and you exactly. pay yourself great salaries yeah. and you love what you do and you build a great company and you get to work with great people yeah. and it's rewarding. Like, yes. that's an exit strategy in itself. You build an exit. You build yeah, exactly. An exit. If I'm doing this 100, if I'm doing this 50 years from now, I'm there's I'm happy with that. I know we've built something great that Sacramento can hold it, hang its hat on. That we we got to mentor and coach and work with a lot of amazing people. Like that's an exit strategy within itself. I think too many people, too many entrepreneurs get focused on what's my exit strategy and they lose focus on you create value in the marketplace and that's where greatness happens. And don't worry about the rest. Create value in the marketplace. Um, do you spend any, yeah, no, well said, well said. So I just have one question. Uh, do you guys spend any time going to real estate conferences like Keller Williams Big Annual or like do you guys Family sell reunion, there? Yeah. yeah. Um, 
we've gone to a few conferences. What we find is mainly agents there. It's right. like, and so it's hard to find the brokers conference. within right. there. So we'll go, but we'll, make, we'll create strategic meetings there to meet with just the broker right. owners. Okay. That's our ideal customer profile. The broker okay. owner buys the software, they get the agents to adopt it. So we got to go where the broker's owners are. Okay. Yeah, so we're very specific in that. So what tips or advice would you have for aspiring entrepreneurs who are just starting out, they've got an idea for a business. What are some of the key characteristics or, or things they can learn and do to be successful? Uh, de-risk your assumptions. As, a, as an aspiring entrepreneur, you always think you need money to validate your idea. Guys, we're entrepreneurs for a reason, because we're innovative, we're creative, we're hardworking, we're, we find loopholes, we, we, we work around you know, corners. That, that's what we do, and you need to do that when you're trying to prove your concept. I sat down with some entrepreneurs the other day who wanted to create an app um, for tutoring. It was like Uber for tutoring. I said, oh, that's a great idea. I, I mean, it seems like a great idea. I don't know. I'm not a college student, but it seems like a great idea. And they're like, so we need $50,000 to create that. But I was like, okay, well, let's let's back up here. What's your assumption here? Again, de-risk your assumption. What's your assumption? Your assumption is that there is a marketplace for people that want tutors on demand. Is there a way that you can de- that you can figure out and prove that marketplace before you have an app? They're like, okay, let's talk about this. Let's and they're like, well, if we had an 800 number, they could call the 800 number. I could be the operator. I could connect them with tutors I have. And again, it's not gonna it's not gonna scale pretty. It's not gonna necessarily get the conversion rate you want. But once you start getting a few of those phone calls, you can say there's a market, there's a need for this, and you can do that without spending a single dime on it. Um, so really think back on, I guess, look at your your big goal here and kind of work backwards on what's the, how can you de-risk your assumptions the most economically way possible? And I guarantee you'll find a way that doesn't cost, it costs less than five hundred dollars to de-risk your assumption and prove that your concept makes sense. I'll tell you right now, when you sit down with an investor and you've already done that legwork and you've proven you're innovative and you can do that on a budget, they're going to look at you completely different than someone who just comes to me and says, I need 10 grand to build this app and I think it's going to work. You have actual metrics to say, hey, I have this conversion rate. This is the marketplace for it. If I have this money, I can I can exponentially increase that and grow that and scale that. They're looking at you completely different. So look back on how can you de-risk your, what assumptions do you have in the business and how can you de-risk them with no money? And I guarantee there's a way to do it with less than $500 and that's your responsibility as innovative entrepreneurs to figure out what that is. So basically it's the customer, the market validation by doing an MVP, a minimal viable product, to see if, to test if that's really a viable solution that the market will buy. Yeah, absolutely. And you don't need money to do that. You typically don't need a product to do that. You can go out and talk to clients. You can go out and provide the solution with a lot of legwork and manpower. There's ways to do it. Um, and it's our job as innovative entrepreneurs to figure out how to do that at no cost. And I guarantee in every single space, there's a way to do it. Unless you're in hardware. Hardware is a whole other piece. I wouldn't even touch that. So you guys. But yes, any other way, typically there's a way to do it. Yes. Or another way is to go to start a weekend. Absolutely. <laughs> Great plug. <laughs> Um, Startup Weekend is a three-day hands-on lesson in entrepreneurship. So you start with an idea on Friday, you build, um, you get other people interested in your idea who are also participating in the Startup Weekend. In between Friday night and uh, Sunday afternoon, you build a minimum viable product and you do some market validation, some customer research and then you pitch to judges on your idea. So it's really a, a quick way. Uh, there's still work that will need to be done afterwards, but it's a it's a quick experiment in what you were Absolutely. just talking about. In, Absolutely. Um, validating, coming up with a minimum viable product and validating that there is a market and that you are solving a real customer problem. 
Questions? Okay. I'm off the hot seat. Wow. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you guys. It's been fun.